0: from PRX Studio 360
1: It's Kurt Anderson When I travel I like visiting the places where famous people lived I've been to Dostoevsky's apartment in St Petersburg and James Thurber's boyhood home in Columbus Ohio But in those places you can't usually sleep in the famous people's bedrooms
2: Thank you for calling New Yorker. Ramada, this is Vivian. May I direct your call?
1: Yeah, I'd like to reserve a room.
3: Reservation.
2: am so speaking. How may I help you?
1: Yeah, I'd like to reserve a room. One of the most important for, inventors uh, most of important all American time American. lived in Midtown Manhattan at the Hotel you know, New Yorker. It's now managed yeah. by Ramada. And, and, and I, if possible, I'd like to reserve a, a particular room.
2: What room number would you like to request?
1: Uh, room 3327.
2: That's a two double bed room, non-smoking. That's fine. Okay. So where did you get the room 3327
1: from? It's a, a famous person used to live there, uh, an inventor named Nikola Tesla. Oh, okay. These days, very few people have even heard of Nikola Tesla, even the ones who work at the hotel where he lived and died. But his name ought to be as famous as Edison's. More than a century ago, he made alternating current, AC, the standard for electric power. He laid the groundwork for radio, yes, ahead of the other guy. He pioneered wireless communication. He developed the remote control and radar before anybody knew what to do with him. Tesla was part visionary, part mad scientist, and absolute genius. But 69 years ago this month, he died alone and broke in a Manhattan hotel room. In Studio 360 today, we'll explore Tesla's strange life and wonderful creations. And we'll talk to some of his heirs, scientists and inventors who are still bucking what the establishment considers possible. My guest, Samantha Hunt, has written a novel about Tesla. It's called The Invention of Everything Else. I asked her how she first became acquainted with Nikola Tesla.
0: I'm embarrassed to say it's probably because of that, you know, 90s hair metal band, Tesla. (laughs) But that is probably a lot of Americans' first introduction to Nikola Tesla.
1: And they named themselves after oh, yeah. Tesla.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, they film. have an album called Edison's Medicine. I mean, they're huge Tesla fans. And when I started reading about some of the details of his life, I thought, my God. I mean, I mean and not so much the wonders that he invented, but really just the oddities of his life. That he lived, you know, 70 years in hotels in New York City, never married you know had these wonderful plans to light the ocean to build a ring around the center of the earth and use that for you know traveling around the world in a day
1: and and was born so deep back into the 19th century and did the the biggest practical things he did which is the the figure out radio and figure out AC in the in the 19th century
0: yeah Yeah.
1: And did he as a child actually invent a little engine powered by bugs, June bugs? He
0: did. That was one of his first inventions. He collected June bugs and he harnessed them onto a a turbine and he made an engine that was powered by That's such a beautiful poetic image in and of itself. Oh, it's absolutely gorgeous. And part of the wonder of him was he did a lot of inventing in his brain. I mean, he says from an early age, from five years old, he saw machines swirling in his head and... A lot of his inventions happened that way. Um, the problem with that then, of course, was that he'd be like, "Well, I invented it. Here it is in my brain, but you know, never producing an actual piece of equipment that could be sold. And um, he got into trouble with that in that he wouldn't protect his patents sometimes or by not developing something that could be demonstrated. you know, other people came along and would steal things from him. But so he uh, wasn't a great capitalist. I mean, part of what's so great about Tesla is rather than solving mysteries, it seemed like he created more mysteries.
1: Samantha Hunt is the author of The Invention of Everything Else. She's my guest today as we talk about Nikola Tesla. Tesla's first and biggest innovation was introducing alternating current as the standard for modern electric power. Mike Daisy is a performer who does a whole show about Tesla, and we asked him to tell us the story. Who is Nikola Tesla?
4: Nikola Tesla was born in 1856, a Serb in what is today Croatia. And from an early age, he was a visionary. I don't mean in the conventional sense. I mean that he literally had visions. There are people who touch the earth lightly. They're tuned to a radio station higher up the dial. Nikola Tesla saw things. He could create simulations of things that had never been, and they would come to his mind all at once, in a flash, whole, complete, and entire. As a young man, Tesla comes to America because he's obsessed with electricity. And if you're obsessed with electricity in this era, the only person to work for is Thomas Edison. So he starts working for Thomas Edison. But these two guys do not get along at all because they are very different people. Edison is a Methodist. I don't mean the religion. I mean, he's obsessed with method. You know, he has all these scientists underneath him and everyone's grinding away at their problems. One and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and Tesla. As I've said, is a visionary, he sees things in his mind's eye, complete and entire. So they don't get along. And the biggest area they disagree is about electricity, alternating current versus direct current. Now, everything that Edison has built, his entire monopoly, his entire system for electricity that's spreading all over the country is built on direct current, except mm, there are a few problems with direct current. Uh, first, uh, children are dying. I mean just a few children. you know there are these nests of wires and children climb up on the wires and then they get electrocuted. but you know, really, where are the parents? You know, Where are the parents? And also, uh, houses are burning down. And it's amazing what people will get used to, because there was a trolley running in Brooklyn on Edison's form of direct current, and people actually got used to listening for the sound that when the trolley made this sound, that sound meant... Get away from the trolley. And people would hear the sound they'd run away. They'd run away in every direction. And moments later, a bolt of electricity would ground itself on a horse or a baby, whatever was nearby. And that's why they're called the Brooklyn Dodgers. You can Google that. But the biggest problem with direct current is that you can only send the electricity about two miles before you have to build a block-wide brick substation. But Edison, the Methodist, doesn't really see this as a problem. He's sort of like, we'll just keep building them, one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four, which means that Sheboygan, Wisconsin is going to have electricity around 2084. Now, alternating current is a completely different kettle of fish because you start cycling that electricity 60 times a second, and suddenly you can send it hundreds, even thousands of miles. No one really knew in that era how far you could actually send the electricity, and that spooked Edison out, and he also feared what it would do to his monopoly because he needed everyone to be running on direct current. So, Tesla and Edison have a massive falling out over this. Tesla leaves and goes to Westinghouse, and he says, build me an alternating electric generator, and he gives him all the plans, and that's how it begins. The war of the currents. AC versus DC. It's not just a band, it's a battle over standards. It's like VHS versus Betamax, but this time it's for your entire house, so you really want to be on the right side of this one. And if you go into buildings in the Upper East Side and throughout New York, you tear into the walls. You'll actually find two sets of wiring in the walls because no one knew who was actually going to win the battle, and they wanted to be ready for either one. And the electricity that alternating current gives you, it's it's brighter and whiter than And then DC power, it's not yellow and flickery. And people like that. And they also like that their houses aren't burning down. They're very fond of that as well. So Edison is in a lot of trouble because his form of electricity is beaten in every way by Teslas. But he's not going to give up without a fight. He hires people to go to all the state and county fairs up and down the eastern seaboard. They go there and they set up tents and they have little alternating electric generators, and then they have public demonstrations where they electrocute cats and dogs and horses and chickens, and in one famous incident at Coney Island, an elephant, and every time they electrocute another animal, they say, Behold the terrible power of alternating electricity! (laughs) And people see this and they're like, oh, my God, I'm not, I'm not going to let that inside my house. It doesn't mention that if they ran Edison's form of electricity, that much of it into any animal, it would kill them just as dead. They leave that part out. But every once in a while in America, spin and public relations does not win out over what people actually want. And eventually, even Edison's own company is forced to switch to alternating current. And Nikola Tesla's brainchild and invention, alternating current and the alternating electric motor that goes with it, spreads across the entire country and the world. It's the form of electricity that runs the motors that are also Tesla's invention in all our can openers, garage door openers. Every motor in your house that moves anything physically is the brainchild of this man. The most remarkable thing is that almost no one knows who he is.
1: Mike Daisy performing part of his monologue about Nikola Tesla. We will hear more from Mike Daisy this hour. And coming up, we climb high above Manhattan to catch some waves. These power amplifiers then take
5: the FM signal and amplify it up to almost 6,000 watts. At the top of the Empire State Building.
1: And that's enough to get us out about 40 air miles from this height. That is ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Stay with us.
0: Studio 360 is supported by Scion. Scion, making vehicles for today's connected youth and offering over 150 accessories to choose from. Learn more at Scion.com. Scion,
6: what moves you?
1: This is Kurt Anderson in Studio 360. Even though we're living in the age of broadband and podcasts and satellite radio... A whole bunch of you are listening to me right now by good old-fashioned broadcast.
5: Nikola Tesla was one of the first inventors
1: to transmit electromagnetic waves, even before Marconi. That is Jim Stagnito, the director of engineering for WNYC. All right, we're going to go upstairs. I went with him to the top of the Empire State Building to check out our radio transmission tower in action is the fm combiner room these are combiner filters now i see it coming out of these transmitters these what look like stove pipes or something that would be attached to a steel copper tube i know it looks
5: very low tech in fact it looks like water pipe um that's the transmission line that's what's actually carrying the signal go ahead and put your hand in there put it inside that cabin i'm scared you're not going to get shot, okay. but you do feel a little heat.
1: Yeah. That's the RF energy. Now this, I mean, you know, talk about kicking it old school. This, I, I just can't believe that radio these days involves, you know.
5: Electrons these. are electrons. Okay. This is the way it works.
1: It just seems like plumbing rather than, rather than radio.
5: Well, that means you've got the radio bug, Kurt.
1: How did you get the radio bug?
5: I pretty much knew what I wanted to do from the time I was six years old being absolutely amazed that somebody is sitting in New York City, and I can hear them in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. Amazing. How does that happen? Television, yeah, but there was something about radio. The pictures were better.
1: WNYC's Director of Engineering, Jim Stagnito, at the transmitter on the 103rd floor of the Empire State Building. You can check out a video of us up there at studio360.org. One reason that Nikola Tesla isn't better known is that most of his inventions were not as practical as radio. And he got less and less practical as time went on. Once again, Mike Daisy. Tesla had always been shy and introverted. But
4: as he got older and more successful, he began to have these salons where he would invite people over to his house. And it was quite a thing to be invited to one of these salons, to get to go to spend time with Nikola Tesla. And journalists who were writing articles about him would often get to go to be in the presence of the great man. And usually when he had you there, he would do things to you. He would show you inventions, and then he would sort of make you part of the inventions. One of the regulars at the salons was Mark Twain. And Mark Twain and Tesla became very, very close after Tesla cured Mark Twain's constipation. He'd been constipated for years and years, and Tesla had him stand on a metal plate and ran an electrical charge through his entire body, and suddenly... He was not constipated, which appears to be a very good way to make people close to you if you want to forge a lifelong friendship, cure their constipation. The favorite thing that Tesla and Twain would do is that um, uh, uh, Nikola Tesla had this, well, it was really an X-ray gun. I mean, (laughs) technically it was an X-ray machine, but I feel the phrase X-ray machine has a certain aura of safety about it that really doesn't apply here because really it's like a gun. It puts out an enormous amount of X-rays and Tesla and Mark Twain. Twain would take turns aiming the x-ray gun at one another and they'd be like no no put put your head on it no put your head on it put your head yeah right there put your head on the end <laughs> put your head on the end Psst! all right all right hey put your put your eye on it yeah put your eye on it yeah put your eye right up to it but yeah put your, put your okay 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 and they did this again and again and again. And they would tape up sheets of undeveloped film behind them. And they make these enormous x-rays of their body, uh, their arms, their legs, their skulls. We actually still have them today. Sheet after sheet of the interior of Mark Twain's skull. X-ray after x-ray. Imagine. All the books that never got written. But even as Tesla's salons got larger and larger, he became stranger and stranger. He started freezing. Freezing into immobility, he'd stop talking, sometimes right in the middle of a sentence, and simply stare off into space, completely rigid, frozen, and no one could get him to react at all. Everyone would just have to let themselves out. Incredibly annoying. Can you imagine how annoying this would be? And he became unbelievably fastidious. He'd always been clean, but he started to see dirt in places no one could see dirt. He'd demand things to be washed eight, nine, ten times. Very obsessive, very compulsive. And it's right about this period that he does what every mad scientist has to do eventually. If they're going to be in the big leagues, they have to put up or shut up. It's time to build a mountain fortress. You need to build a mountain fortress far away from your fellow man, somewhere in the remote desolation, where you can perform your experiments in peace, where you can bring your visions to fruition. <laughs>
1: Mike Daisy, performing a bit from his series Great Men of Genius. And Samantha Hunt is here with me in Studio 360. She wrote the novel The Invention of Everything Else. Samantha, you must have studied this strange period of his life where he was working in this mountain lab.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, in uh, the time he spent in Colorado Springs, I think this was in 1899, he went through a million dollars in... About eight months
1: and that was where <laughs> as you describe so, it he, he basically he started generating lightning Sure,
0: I mean, he was trying to command lightning bolts out of the palm of his hand, so which yeah. he did yeah which he did, which he did he would have his friends over to the laboratory and one friend described it as he snapped his fingers and there was a ball of fire in his hand and that he could then pass from person to person. I'm, he was, he, he fancied himself a magician, but then insisted on the fact that it wasn't magic. He had one invention um, that scared a local precinct up on Mulberry Street because it, what it was was a oscillating resonator that would just tap, tap, tap very gently, but hitting each time at the same point on the wavelength so that very soon the waves were huge. And apparently from his laboratory on uh, Houston, uh, he was... Starting a small earthquake all over the Lower East Side, and so he, he made great claims. He was like, "I could smash the world in two, like an apple. You know, I'm gonna halve it."
1: Did did the fact that he was he was born in Eastern Europe and and emigrated as a young man to the United States did did the Eastern Europeanness add to this this oh, kind sure. of media caricature as oh, mad scientist? Oh, sure. Scientist? I
0: mean, imagine he's got this Serbian accent, and this is right at the build up to World War One, and so we have Archduke Ferdinand and. Certainly, I'm sure racism had a lot to do with it. And plus, he was a strange-looking man, a wonderfully handsome man. But he was over six foot two, uh, and I think weighed a hundred and forty pounds. I mean, so really, kind of very, very slender, and just an oddball.
1: And you suggest that. There are people who actually s- thought he was from another planet or had traveled oh. from the future.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. When he when he was out in Colorado Springs and working with really high voltage electricity, he um, set up a radio transmitter where he would sit and listen at night and thought that he was hearing messages from Mars and thought that he was. Also it was his
1: version of SETI as we <laughs> know. <today. laughs> exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And. Not, you know, he wasn't saying I can translate what they say, but he was just saying I think that there is life out there and I think that I've heard it in these radio waves. But as soon as Tesla got back to New York City, you know, the headlines were really horrible. He kind of immediately became a point of ridicule. And um, and never really lost that stigma. Never lost that stigma. In fact, the Superman comic book had a, a, a character named Tesla that was an evil mad
1: scientist. Early which, on, what when when Tesla was still alive? Yeah,
0: when Tesla was still alive. I mean, it must have just broken nice. his
1: heart.
2: Nash, true to his flat, the mad scientist, whose warnings have held the city in a grip of terror, went on his rampage of destruction on the stroke of midnight. The deadly impact of his mysterious ray smashed the famous Tower Bridge. This looks like a job for Superman. That's
1: from Max Fleischer's version of Superman, a 1941 cartoon called The Mad Scientist. Megalomaniacal geniuses trying to dominate the world. Sounds like a lot of people in Hollywood, which is maybe why the movies are so full of mad scientists.
2: There's the bastard. A man of science who sought to create... A man after his own image, without reckoning upon God.
5: Gentlemen, my name is Dr. Evil. In a little while, you'll notice that the Krebnakistani warhead has gone missing. See you in the future. Mm.
6: <laughs> I made it with my
2: own hands from the bodies I took from graves, from the gallows, anywhere. The men who controlled the destiny of the world will be here. <laughs> It works! I finally invent something that works. I'm
5: alive! It's
2: alive! It's
3: alive!
6: <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: Vincent Parabone, a scientist at Yale, isn't mad, but he does get pretty ticked off by the way movies portray scientists.
7: Because I grew up in a small town in Florida, there were no scientists anywhere around me. Since most people don't know scientists, they, they interact with scientists mostly through film, I guess. Mr. Spock, for me, was my first um, introduction or exposure to a scientist. Science officer Spock,
2: reporting as ordered, Captain. Please sit down.
7: It was the science officer. Just the concept of that, to me, still today. We unfortunately don't have that today. <laughs> you know, We don't have a science officer in the White House.
2: I would say that was a logical assumption, Captain.
7: There was that yin and yang of him between being logical and scientific and being emotional, and scientists in film, anyway, are more likely to put people at risk for scientific gain. And I think that this is a kind of a, a result of the atomic bomb era and one of the most horrific things that has ever been brought to the human race and brought to us in full color by scientists.
2: Dr. Strangelove, do we have anything like that in the works? A moment, please,
7: Mr. President. One of my favorite movies, Dr. Strangelove, that character of his is so memorable, I think. This crazed German scientist who could conjure up this horrible mutual yeah. destruction device. The
8: doomsday machine
7: is terrifying. It's, it's simple to understand. So this, there are these characterizations in film that like to hang on. If he's not an evildoer, he's at least not well-adjusted, disheveled, sloppy, disorganized. That's the general opinion of them. Independence Day, done by Roland Emmerich, which is Brent Spinner, the one who plays Data on Star Trek, plays a scientist who's working in Area 51. This is the
8: vault. Or as some of us have come to call it, the freak show.
7: (laughs) And this character is the worst character for science. He's this crazy Einstein-haired guy with his pants pulled up too high, and he's so consumed in his scientific research.
5: Can you tell us anything useful about him? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean... They're not all that dissimilar from us.
7: You never thought it might be important to tell the rest of the country. And that, I thought, was very damaging because it gives this notion that scientists are somehow so involved in the study of what they do, they cannot be put in positions to make decisions. My favorite portrayal of a scientist comes from a Roland Emmerich film also, which is Dennis Quaid, who was in The Day After, which wasn't a very popular film, where he plays a climatologist.
1: Mr. Vice
2: President... If we don't act now, it's going to be too late.
7: He's a handsome, attractive, well-adjusted guy, which is unusual for the scientific character in a film. When I watch these movies, I I get jealous by the idea that in the Oval Office there is a scientist brought in to answer questions. What's probably the most erroneous portrayal of scientists overall is that they are in some position of power. You know, scientists in reality have never been in any position of power as far as I understand it. Certainly today, I know, at least the science that I work in, Uh, We really have no power whatsoever, and we're not particularly well funded, and we're not particularly rich, so we can't hatch these elaborate evil schemes. And I don't understand where that ever really came from, where the idea that presidents really confide and rely and take advice and judgment from scientists. Unfortunately, I would say they often don't.
1: That's biologist Vincent Parabone. He studies the brain, and he co wrote a book about bioluminescence. I'm Kurt Anderson, and we're talking about Nikola Tesla and his legacy. Tesla did have a bit of the mad scientist about him, and he also had a sort of strange love moment late in his life. He claimed to have invented the ultimate superweapon. Once again, Mike Daisy picks up the story. One of Tesla's last major inventions was the
4: death ray. And that's the name of it. He actually calls it that. It's called... Tesla's death ray and you have to love that you have to love the brazenness of just calling it what it actually is a ray that causes death and he holds a huge press conference to let the world know that he has in fact invented a death ray and all these journalists you know go to see the death ray and they get there Tesla sits them down And he talks to them and he explains that he's invented this death ray because it is a weapon so terrible that it will never be used. We all know how well that works out. And then they go outside to see the death ray demonstrated. And it's very impressive as this large boxy base. And there's a sort of projecting tube coming out of the side of it. And he goes up to it and he fiddles with some settings. And then he pulls an enormous lever down. And this dull violet light comes out of the end of it. And there's this low humming and nothing happens. And then a a bird flies across the beam and it, it drops dead. And the journalists are like, the bird he, he, he killed the bird he's like no 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 this is just an accident this is the beam demonstrated it is far too terrible to even speak of its implications but I have shot it into the Arctic and uh, uh, Perry who's on an expedition right now will have seen the beam and when he returns from his expedition oh he'll have some stories to tell Cookies anyone and the journalists are kind of like really? I think we just got scammed. Does this guy scam? Did he really? And then they all go inside and have cookies and milk. And the death ray passes into legend. So years later, Tesla dies. And the day after he dies. All his papers go missing because this is what happens if you're a mad scientist and you invent a death ray at some point during your life. When you die, the government shows up and they take all your papers away just to make sure that the death ray, you know, just to make sure. And so they get some scientists to come in to look at the papers and they're like, look at these and just just tell us, you know, just tell us what you think. And the scientists look at the papers and then they report back and they say, you know, I don't know. What this is. I mean, there's poems to pigeons and uh, there's uh, uh, gibberish, and I don't understand. I, I don't know what this is. And so the government doesn't know what to do with the papers. So they hang on to them for seven or eight years, and eventually, finally, um, they give the papers back to the family. And the family takes the papers and they go back to Europe, back behind the Iron Curtain, to build a museum to Nikola Tesla in Belgrade. So now it's the 1970s, and the Cold War has been heating up for quite some time. And the CIA discovers that the Soviet Union has been building something on the Sino-Soviet border. And they don't know what it is, really. Like, they've taken pictures of it, and and, and nobody knows what it is. And so they bring uh, scientists in to look at these pictures to try to figure out what it is they're building. It's this... Well, it's this whole installation has this enormous boxy base and this sort of huge tube projecting out of it. And so the scientists look at this and they're like, well, I I know what it looks like, but (laughs) it can't be that. But I I can tell you what it looks like. It looks like... um, you know, an enormous beam weapon. It looks like a giant uh, beam weapon facility is what it looks like. It looks, you know, it looks like, uh, looks like a death ray. And, uh, and the military is like, a beam weapon, you know, can, can they build that? And the scientists say, no, 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 they, they can't. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't work. We experimented with beam weapons years ago, and they don't work at all. Uh, they don't work. And the military says, right. But why are they building it if it doesn't work? And it's right about this point that somebody remembers Nikola Tesla. And they do some searching. They discover that nobody kept a copy of all those papers from years ago. And further, that those papers are no longer in Belgrade they have floated their way into the Soviet Union and disappeared. And now the military is very concerned and they're asking them, "Can you can you build us a beam weapon?" The scientists are saying, "No one no one can build it. It doesn't exist. It doesn't work." But why are they building it then? And then one scientist in the back says, "You know, unless unless You know, it's just that um, the reason it doesn't work, the beam weapons don't work, is that the atmosphere, the air disrupts the beam too much. But, you know, maybe if it was in a vacuum, you know, if it was in a vacuum, maybe uh, the beam would hold coherence. Maybe it could work if it was in a vacuum, if it was in, you know, space. And the military says, go on. And those simple words became a Department of Defense project. And that project eventually became an initiative the Strategic Defense Initiative, Star Wars, a plan to put satellites around the Earth armed with lasers and beam weapons designed to close the death ray gap, a gap that may or may not even exist.
1: Mike Daisy, from a series of performances called Great Men of Genius.
2: The great nations of the world will sit here uh, like people facing themselves across a table, each with a cocked gun, and no one knowing whether someone might tighten their finger on on the trigger. There is another way, perhaps coming up with something that would render these weapons obsolete, and uh, I don't know how long it's going to take, but we're going to start.
1: If you can't zap your enemies from a distance, maybe you can pulverize them in your garage. We
2: have shiny, that's aluminum. We put, uh, you know, whole chickens in. It came out uh, a greasy powder. I thought I might be able to sell it to the Mafia. <laughs>
1: tornado in a can that and more wonders of modern technology ahead in studio 360 from pri and wnyc stay with us studio
8: 360 is supported by scion
0: Scion, making vehicles for today's connected youth and offering over 150 accessories to choose from. Learn more at scion.com.
5: Scion, what moves you.
0: You are familiar
2: with the phrase, man's reach exceeds his grasp. Is a lie. Man's grasp exceeds his nerve. Society only tolerates one change at a time. First time I tried to change the world, I was hailed as a visionary. Second time,
0: I was asked for lightly to retire. <laughs> so here I am, enjoying my retirement.
1: David Bowie playing the inventor, Nikola Tesla, in The Prestige, a movie about science and magic from 2006. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm talking with Samantha Hunt, the author of a novel about Tesla. It's called The Invention of Everything Else. Samantha, in your book, you describe a machine Tesla was working on at the end of his life, which he suggested could photograph a person's memories
0: yeah, that was one of his ideas that, that um, you know, thoughts are electrical and can be recorded and may be reflected through the retina. So why can't we watch a movie of our thoughts? Which I think is one of the most beautiful ideas I've ever heard. I mean, the, the whole lure, lure of writing about this era was that it seemed to be a time where... There were no boundaries on possibility. I really think of him as one of the last, and hopefully this isn't true, but I really think of him as one of the last people who was inventing on his own. He didn't have funding from the Department of Defense or he didn't have funding from Columbia University.
1: Uh, Samantha, you suggest in in the novel that uh, Tesla was really sort of an artist whose medium was science and technology.
0: I felt like when I was writing this, I knew tons of people tons of people who were painting masterpieces or who were writing great novels or writing great plays but i didn't know anybody who took that creative bent and applied it to the world of science you know i didn't know anybody who was brewing up you know the human dna and trying to cross it with a, an eagles <laughs> why you know we have the term experimental artist or experimental writer but why don't we ever have the term experimental scientist you know someone who is really trying to cross these boundaries so i i do think that partly why Tesla has come on so strong in the recent years is, is that other creative people do feel that lack of artist inventors in the world and are kind of wondering, where
1: are ours? <laughs> Samantha Hunt, thanks very much. Thanks. Samantha got us thinking about experimental science, so we sent Matt Kavnar to search for Tesla's descendants in garages and basements, even a Quonset hut on a farm. He started out right in the heart of mainstream American technology, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab.
3: I think some of the advantages that amateur inventors have over professionals is that they don't have the preconceived notions as to what should be possible.
6: That's Rachel Zimmerman, and she knows what she's talking about.
3: She invented the Bliss Symbols printer. I initially invented the Bliss Symbol printer as my grade 7 science fair project. The printer allowed people with cerebral palsy to communicate quickly.
6: It was low cost and easy to use. Even more impressively, Rachel invented it when she was only 12 years old.
3: The nice thing about being 12 years old is is that nobody is yet telling you what you can and can't do. Rachel now works at
6: NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. She still thinks a lot about inventing, But with a growing family, she knows an inventor's life has its limits.
3: I wouldn't necessarily have a a steady source of income that you would with a regular job. And then the challenge, of course, is taking the time and effort and money to pursue those ideas to fruition.
6: NASA may have the resources to build space shuttles, but you can't buy raw imagination. So they've started competitions for garage inventors trying to harness their creativity. It's official. NASA is looking outside the box. I've never seen the box. Nobody's ever shown me the box. And it's like, am I thinking outside the box? It's like, beats me. Brian Turner is a garage inventor in Kansas City He's the captain of the Space Pirates, a team that's answered NASA's call.
8: Space Pirates, are you ready? Ready. Yes. That was lousy. (laughs) We're going to try this again.
6: Brian and his Space Pirates are gathered in his driveway on a sunny winter day half an hour north of Kansas City.
8: All right, are you ready? Yes. yes!
6: The pirates have entered NASA's Beam Power Challenge to develop technology that will take mankind to space with a space okay. elevator.
8: So I can introduce everybody if you'd like. Yeah, last. sure. This is Frank. Howdy. Frank's a space elevator enthusiast. He met me through the Internet. I'm really, really good at software,
7: so when it comes time to do that...
8: This is Danny. I'm Dan Leafblad. I do just about anything that Brian needs me to do that I can do well. Um, this is this is Ravi. Hello. Yeah, Ravi's from India. He found me at the robotics club. We all, we're all ready to help
6: him. We're ready to work with him. It's a motley crew, but they're committed to making a space elevator a reality.
8: A space elevator is a rope. We tie it to the equator. We put a weight out on the end of it. And just like a kid can spin a yo-yo over his head, the spinning of the planet Earth will keep that string tight. And then to get to space, you climb up the string and you jump off.
6: You wouldn't really climb the cable yourself. A dedicated module, the elevator, would take you up. NASA thinks a space elevator is theoretically possible. The hard part is figuring out how to make it go. Turner and his team use solar power, which they direct with mirrors.
8: We start with the closet door mirrors like you get at Lowe's and you hang on the back of your door to see if your clothes match. We set up 19 of these things. Our climber had a solar panel on it and it climbed straight up at about eight miles an hour, which is about as fast as most of us run.
6: A bunch of people standing in a driveway pointing mirrors might sound like an ant-frying competition.
8: This thing is basically an Archimedes death ray. We could set stuff on fire, roast hot dogs.
6: But this is serious stuff. NASA is offering a $2 million prize to the team that can power a climber to the top of a one-kilometer cable fast enough. Still, Brian's wife, Cindy, is unconvinced.
4: It gets very frustrating, um, and I tell him very often, we're not doing this again next year, right, honey? And, uh... He's very uh, evasive with that answer.
8: I'm not an evasive. <laughs> I don't say yes. I don't say no.
4: I don't want to squash his dream. I want him to be active and happy. But there's also a point where I go, stop spending money. We, you know, At some point, we're going to retire, and I want to go and travel and do other things besides go to space pirate competitions and hang around the garage.
6: Cindy should be warned. Just because you hit retirement age doesn't mean you stop inventing. Last count,
2: what, 13 grandchildren, and one great grandchild, so your old geezer has done some good.
6: <laughs> Halfway across Kansas to the west of Brian and Cindy lives Frank Polifka, a retired farmer. What is it about Kansas? Maybe it's the lingering influence of The Wizard of Oz.
2: You can watch the clouds and then you'll, you'll see some of them that are starting to move in a circular motion and you could see it, you know, take a building and it'd kind of lift it and all of a sudden it'll just kind of fly apart. So I, I thought if you could contain something like that, you should be able to have quite a destructive
6: power in there. And ever since he was a kid, he's dreamed of harnessing the power of a tornado. It's an invention that'll grind just about anything. And now he's invented a device that does. All out back in a Quonset hut on the farm he shares with Ruth, his wife of 47 years. It works. And it has no moving parts. And uh, it's pretty ingenious.
2: When you look in through the exhaust part, you can see it swirling around in there. And I thought it's the same as a dust
6: devil. So I called it a
2: Vintex. In German, is a dust devil. Yeah. sprecht
6: Deutsch? <laughs> <laughs> the Windex is a squat, six-foot-tall metal contraption comprised of a large funnel supported by four legs. Four jets set around the rim of the funnel blow compressed air into it. As the air whips around the inside of the funnel, it forms into a high-speed vortex. Think of it as a tornado in a can.
2: It blows it in just almost like a potato gun. Uh, we heat the air 650 to 700 degrees well, this is what the engineers have told me. They says if, if I'd have tried to do something like that, I'd have quit because it's impossible to do. And uh, I guess I wasn't dumb enough to quit.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Frank drove me down to the Quonset hut behind his house where he keeps his prototype wind hexes. He comes prepared to demonstrate the wind hex with some aluminum cans and a wine bottle.
2: I don't drink much wine. You <laughs> drank half down. of that
7: wine, darling.
2: I had to drink it so we could use it today. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll start him up and see what he does. Probably it won't do nothing.
6: Frank throws the cans in the machine. A few moments later, they emerge as fine, shiny dust.
2: Yeah, see, shiny, that's aluminum.
6: We put, uh, you know,
2: whole chickens in it came out uh, a greasy powder. I thought I might be able to sell it to the mafia. <laughs>
6: There's a company in Missouri that's using the wind hex for poultry processing, and waste disposal and mining firms have shown interest. And Frank's always looking for ways to improve his invention.
2: There's still some stuff that can be learned from a tornado that can be used in the machine, in the Windex. I, I'm still fascinated by him. If there'd be one in the sky today, I'd have to be watching it.
3: I think that amateur inventors definitely keep a bit of a spark of childhood in, in that they're still asking questions, wondering how the world works, how they can make it better. Rachel Zimmerman's talking
6: about inspiration. For Frank, it came from a tornado. For Brian Turner, it's the prestige of NASA. But for Rachel, it just comes from looking closely at her own
3: life. I still have that spark. I regained whatever I had lost when my son was born, and I see the world through his eyes sometimes, and everything looks so big to him and so new. He saw his first rainbow last week, and when he went back to the same window the next day and it wasn't there, he said, why is there no rainbow?
6: For Studio 360, I'm Matthew Kavnar. You can see a video
1: of Frank Polifka and his tornado in a can on our website, pulverizing just about anything he can get his hands on. That's at studio360.org.
6: This extraordinary man is dead, or so they say. The papers on Friday published obituaries and editorials summarizing his life and work, and they told of his personal habits and eccentricities. Tesla, they say, is dead.
1: New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia in January 1943. Nikola Tesla was 86. He had been ignored or forgotten for most of his later years. But surely it would have pleased Tesla if he could have heard Mayor LaGuardia's eulogy going out on the airwaves over radio.
6: But Tesla is not really dead. The real, the important part of Tesla lives in his achievement, which is great, almost beyond calculation. An integral part of our civilization, of our daily lives, of our
2: current war effort. Why mourn Tesla? His life is a triumph. The triumph of all the people of the world.
1: And that is the end of the show for today. I want to thank Mike Daisy for performing for us. And Samantha Hunt, whose novel The Invention of Everything Else, is now out in paperback.